Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, it's Chris Deeran here for the last of our four Scottish election special editions of the New Statesman podcast. Thanks to those of you who've got in touch to say you've been enjoying these shows. And if you haven't already, please take a minute to subscribe to our main podcast. Coming up in this episode. I'm not sure that Boris Johnson is an immovable object. I think <laughs> Boris Johnson is in what I can only politely describe as deep, deep doo-doo. With the Holyrood election looming, I interviewed Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and among other things, we spoke about why she's still confident she can lead Scotland out of the UK in the next five years. Also... Who is going to cause Nicola Sturgeon more trouble? Is it Alex Salmond and a couple of his cronies, or a couple of bog-standard, replacement-level Conservative or Labour MSPs? The answer to that, it seems to me, is self-evident. She can't get away from this idea that she's too cautious, and it wouldn't surprise me, unduly, if she didn't last the term. I'll be speaking with two top Scottish journalists, The Spectator's Alex Massey, and my new New Statesman colleague, Danny Garavelli, for their assessment of the campaigns on the eve of the election. But first, what's been happening this week? Well, look, I know I said last week that the Channel 4 leaders debate was the last. It turns out it wasn't. The BBC hosted their own final, final debate on Tuesday night, meaning that I had to miss the Champions League again. Thanks very much. And it was, well, let's just say that even though I'm a Man United fan, I'd much rather have watched City qualifying for the final than Douglas Ross's forays down the right wing and Patrick Harvey's dribbling on the left. Actually, the best fun came in the half hour before that debate when the BBC spoke to the leaders of the smaller parties. They're quite the exotic bunch. There was George Galloway, that indefatigable old lefty, who's now calling for, well, tax cuts and even suggesting people might want to vote Tory. Hold your nose and vote for the best candidate to save the union. It's a big ask, but I think that it's an idea that time has come. Fair enough. There was someone claiming to be the leader of Scottish UKIP, yep, I thought they'd chucked it too, who complained while live on the BBC at prime time that the media ignore us. Well, if the media would pay attention to it, we did circulate it at the time, but the media ignore us. And in amongst these minnows was a whale. Alex Salmond, still, somehow, even after everything, remains incredibly pleased with himself. Salmond denied being fixated on Scotland's past before banging on about the Declaration of Our Broth and, for some reason, the American Declaration of Independence. The vast majority of Scots who know about it are intensely proud of the Declaration of Our Broth and should be. I mean, for goodness sake, this is a document celebrated by the American Senate. If America is proud of the Declaration of Our Broth, shouldn't Scotland be proud of it as well? Meanwhile, the voters appear to be declaring their own independence from Mr Salmond. The polls suggest his Alba party will be lucky to pick up a single seat. In the debate proper, there was an unexpected outbreak of policy discussion among the party leaders as, just in time, right at the death, important issues such as social care, taxation levels and the economic recovery from Covid received an airing. 
Let's have a human rights based approach around our, our care service. Let's invest in social care, invest in the workforce so we can have a so national care service worthy of the name. It doesn't all have to be one single nationalised body, but we absolutely need to ensure that we avoid having this fragmented picture. And if we're going to have a recovery in this country, we're going to need to invest in the skills and the talents of people. Yeah. We won't do that by increasing taxes at this time. For the next parliament, given that we are going to be recovering economically from COVID, tax stability really matters and therefore we have no plans uh, to increase income tax. I'm not saying this is a cast iron commitment but our pledge is to seek parity in the tax system. You want to give yourself a tax cut. It then descended into a scrum about independence and the timing of a second referendum but of course it always does. You no, I'm sorry Douglas, that is not the, qu the fundamental well, question, the question is asking. what is the And it ended with rather too much talk about hugging for my chilly northern European temperament. Your post-pandemic dream, and I saw one. I'm going to say family, I've not seen my dad. Hugging my mum and my dad and my wee sister. No, hugging my parents. Yeah, have an evening meal with my sisters. It would be <laughs> an increasingly huggy experience. Also, the knives are well and truly out after Alex Salmon claimed in the New Yorker magazine that he could have destroyed Nicola Sturgeon if he'd wanted to. The comments sparked a furore on Holyrood Twitter, with Scottish Health Secretary Jean Freeman leading the charge, tweeting that the comments were utterly shameful. Salmon's ALBA colleague, Chris McKelleny, insisted, however, that the comments had been misinterpreted. Meanwhile, Scottish Labour have been making a land grab for Tory votes, rolling out former Better Together campaign chief Alistair Darling. The ex-Chancellor has written a letter to Conservative voters telling them that Anas Sarwar shares your priorities. The letter, targeted at the seven Tory-held constituencies, appeals to Conservatives to give the second of their two Holyrood votes to Labour. The SNP have called the intervention a complete disaster. I guess we'll find out whether that's true tomorrow. So, after several weeks of campaigning, the work is almost done. As we record this, Scotland is preparing to go to the polls tomorrow to decide the shape of its parliament for the next five years and possibly the future shape of Britain itself. The New Statesman's polling expert, Ben Walker, joins me. Welcome, Ben. Hello, thanks for having me. The race is now effectively run. The leaflets have been posted, the memes have been tweeted, the manifestos have been largely ignored. So what's going to happen tomorrow? We are one day to polling day, and I suppose, really, without sounding too full of myself, I'm meant to bring a data-based clarity to this podcast. And annoyingly, right now, I can't, because in the final few days of this campaign, we've seen the polls diverge quite notably in Scotland, we're not seeing much herding from the polling industry. We now have the SNP ranging between 42% and 49% on the constituency ballot, the Tories between 19% and 25%, and Labour between 17% and 22%. That's not really helpful, because while this election was the SNP's, uh, they were the front runner, they were going to quite clearly win this, a lot of the seats, a lot of the margins, the position of uh, Labour or the Tories in the Holyrood Parliament was going to come down to the margins. You have a lot of constituencies, a lot of regions right now, which, if shifted by half a percentage point, could see some quite dramatic differences to seat numbers. The Alba Party as well are on about 3 to 4%. That could mean potentially they could be winning some seats, but we don't really yet know. And what does that tell us then about the likelihood the SNP will get the overall majority they need to, to pass the legislation for an independence referendum and, and really bother Boris Johnson about it? At the moment, our forecast has the SNP unchanged on the seats it won in 2016. But like I said before, there's a fine line between it netting two or three more or even losing two or three more. So which... to be clear, that would mean a minority SNP government? 
Exactly that. And even a, a, a lower number of SNP seats, uh, it's, it's always possible. This was the election the SNP were going to comfortably storm and build their base on. But this campaign, in terms of the polling, for them has been, they've, they've been one of the biggest losers. They've been dropping seven percentage points in the polls since February. And we tend to think that Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leaders, had a bad campaign. But, but in terms of voting intention, the biggest drops have been... Uh, the SNP. And can we expect the uh, the Green vote to make up for any SNP failure to get an overall majority? If you add the Greens to the SNP vote, will you have that pro-independence majority at Holyrood? Oh yes, at, at the moment it seems as if the Greens are sitting pretty with an unquestioned uh, doubling of their seats. So in 2016 they won five MSPs and at the moment our forecast has them to win 10. Sometimes our modelling puts them on 11 or even nine, but really they are sitting quite comfortably with, with a pretty successful campaign on that regard. And second place, that's the other big question in this election. Yeah, now this is the one I think really all of us uh, down south will be a bit, well, I'm not really south, but all of us, all of us in England will, will be watching, which is who, which of the uh, two parties will be the main, although not official opposition, the main opposition to the SNP. And at the moment, as I say before, it's, it's really down to the fine lines. And here's an interesting statistic that I think we should uh, all just bear in mind going into uh, polling day. According to modelling and according to way the Labour vote is distributed, Labour does not need to be in second place on votes to be second on seats. The Scottish Tory vote is a little more concentrated in the South and countryside regions. That actually works against them in terms of regional seat distribution. And so quite put, put simply, Labour could be polling third right now. They are. But that doesn't mean they are guaranteed to be third in seats. If it is close, if it is like 18% Labour, 19% Tory, that is like a 50-50 chance of Labour coming second on seats. It is quite close. And just something to bear in mind as well, tactical voting is going to be coming to play quite uh, significantly. We have 15% of Tory voters from 2019 now saying they will vote Scottish Labour this election. We're not seeing that from Labour voters to Tory. We're seeing it only from Tory voters to Labour. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. So this close in, it's still a bit too uh, too close to call. We'll, we'll see what, what happens tomorrow, although we don't get the results till Saturday uh, afternoon or even early evening due to the, uh, the complexity of the Scottish voting system and I think a little bit of uh, social distancing as well. So thanks very much, Ben. Um, if you haven't already, I recommend you check out Ben's work on the New Statesman Scottish Independence Poll Tracker, available on newstatesman.com. The link's in the show's notes, so do take a look. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12 by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. After the break. For me, it's a very much a utilitarian argument. It's about building a better country. And independence is, for me, not an end in itself. My conversation with the First Minister, as well as analysis from Danny Garavelli and Alex Massey. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, as the campaign drew to a close, I was joined by Nicola Sturgeon for an event jointly held by the New Statesman and my think tank, Reform Scotland. You can watch the full conversation online, but here's a taster. Hello, First Minister. Hello. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. The polls suggest your party is about to win a fourth term and a second term for you as First Minister. How do you explain the ongoing gigantic gap between your party and you and the rest? Are the others just rubbish or is there something else happening in there? I have to say I hate listening to people talking about the election as if it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, And maybe it's my early... uh, experience in politics of losing every election I contested that just uh, means that I can never uh, and should never treat an election as if the outcome is is certain. I often think it is a source of real frustration to many of our country's commentators that despite all of the flaws and failings and fragilities you all see in us and some of them will be fair comment, others perhaps less so we can maybe get into some of that later on. But despite all of that, the public seem to still quite like us. And the public can look at the record of a government, uh, its strengths and weaknesses, can look at the circumstances in which a government has been operating and make allowances for the you know unforeseen things that have made it difficult to do certain things, particularly over the past year. Uh, also be pretty blunt about mistakes and areas where they think we've not done well enough, but weigh all of that in the round and and come to a balanced decision. But, you know, allied to that, and I would say this, wouldn't I, because I'm talking about my opponents here, I think there has been a real failure of opposition in Scotland over the past uh, number of years, where neither of the main opposition parties have really managed to, to get into their stride. And at a very basic level, even understand what the role of an opposition is and how to succeed as an opposition and use that as the stepping stone to starting to be seen as a credible alternative government in waiting. What do you think of Anna Sarwar? I think most people I know think he's had quite a good campaign. He's pretty appealing. I like, I admit to the thing that traditionally uh, by common uh, standards and politics you're not meant to do. I like Anna. Obviously I, I know Anna's I have known Anas for some time. The first kind of serious election I stood in was against his dad, and uh, his dad beat me, of course, uh, back then. So I've I've known the Sarwar family uh, for quite a long time. I like Anas. I think he's very capable. I think the sitting on the fence and just pretending I'm above the fray will work for so long, and I think you can already see that he's running out of road. On that, even in this campaign, you can't be a political leader and and just decide that you're you're not going to decide what side of big issues that you are on. Uh, but I think he's got a lot of ability. I, I'll leave it there because, as well as being an opposition leader, he is actually my opponent in my constituency. So I don't <laughs> want to talk him up too much. You're sure you put the black spot on him by saying nice things, anyway. Um, let's talk about a second referendum. So you've said you want to hold one in the first half of the next parliament. Boris Johnson has repeatedly said that's not going to happen. What's going to happen when this unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, looking just at the developments of today, that Boris Johnson is an immovable object. I think <laughs> Boris Johnson is in what I can only politely describe as deep, deep doo-doo um, right now. But 
I'm saying that lightheartedly, there is a really serious set of very grave allegations now swirling around Boris Johnson and, you know, his longevity as Prime Minister may not be quite as uh, certain uh, as we might have thought just a matter of weeks ago, but that's uh, obviously another matter. Um, in, in terms of the timing of a referendum, you know, let me make this clear and this frustrates some people on my own side of the independence argument. Um, I, I know that, but it's important for me to be straight with people. Uh, Continuing to deal with COVID and get us through COVID and into the recovery from COVID is my priority. That's what needs my focus for as long as it takes. So a referendum can only come after we're out of this immediate COVID crisis. I hope for all sorts of reasons that that will be in a time frame of, you know, before the end of 2023, the first half of the parliamentary term. But I can't guarantee that. And that principle of the COVID uh, situation coming first is one that will be my uh, sort of commitment for as long as it takes. But whenever we get to that, if there is a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament, you know, the basic principles of democracy have to count for something. The fact that we are still in Scotland having a debate about what do we do if Westminster refuses to respect Scottish democracy is in itself, I think, a really powerful argument for us not being subject to Westminster. But if we want to turn a majority for independence into independence, it has to involve that majority expressing itself in a legitimate legal process. So I'm, I have no truck with illegal wildcat referendums because they won't deliver independence. Catalonia is living proof of that. Um, I hope that whoever's Prime Minister, if there is a majority in the Scottish Parliament, we can negotiate that sensibly the way, in the same way that was done in the run-up to 2014. If there is a continued block on that, we will bring forward legislation. Um, if that legislation is unchallenged, by definition, it will be a legal referendum. And if it is challenged by Westminster, and I hope it doesn't come to this, then that will have to be resolved legally and we will vigorously defend the right of the Scottish Parliament to allow people in Scotland to choose. But we're only even talking about this because we've got the absurd situation of there being a question mark over whether or not Scottish democracy is respected, which mm -hmm. tells its own story. Since Brexit, we've seen uh, the number in, in favour of uh, independence in the polls creeping up a bit. It seems to have come back down slightly, but it was over 50% for quite a, quite a long time. Um, what do you detect in the yes movement with these new people, the indie curious coming into it and what their priorities are, which are probably in a sense a bit different from the priorities of the 2014 gang? Does, does the, does the, do the arguments change? Does the, the sort of emotion around it begin to morph so that people who were known in 2014 are now bringing their ideas to the party? Um, I think if we're sensible, we embrace the, well, obviously we embrace people who are moving from no to yes, or even open-minded to that and listen to the the reasons why people are moving and the, the issues they still require to be persuaded around in order to perhaps complete that journey. You know, if we ignore that or decide that, well, they're not supporting it for the right reasons, so we don't want them, then we're, we're doomed to failure. Like if I listen to people who are on that journey and think about why I want independence, I'm not sure there is a massive gulf between us. I'm patriotic. I, Scotland's a nation. I, I think Scotland as a nation should be independent, but I've never been that kind of 
just because we're a nation, we should be independent, existential nationalist. It's For me, it's a very much a utilitarian argument. It's about building a better country. And independence is, for me, not an end in itself. It is a means to the end of a better country. And therefore, we've got to demonstrate that and effectively live that in how we prosecute the argument. And if I have a worry about the... The, the super majority cohort, which I, I think can be overstated in terms of its numbers. If I was in that unpersuaded but open-minded category, I would hear it as they're not interested in me. They're not interested in persuading me. They're just interested in how they can bulldoze their way over me to get to independence as quickly as possible. And then there's lots of questions around it about the kind of country that they're actually envisaging. So I, I think we've got to be patient about building the case because by building the case, we build the majority. The way I articulate it might be a lot less glamorous than some others who think it's just about, you know, sort of arm wrestling and flexing the muscle and demonstrating how committed uh, we are. But actually the patient hard work committed way of doing it is the way that I think is going to deliver the success we want. If you feel the need for more, the link to the video of my full interview with Nicola Sturgeon is in the show notes. Now, as this pivotal Holyrood election campaign draws to a close, I'm delighted to be joined today by Danny Garavelli and Alex Massey, the Kate Fleming and Steve Arnott of modern Scottish journalism, to talk over the events of recent weeks and what we might expect from voting day. Danny is an award-winning writer and commentator for the Scotland on Sunday newspaper who likes to get behind the headlines and the spin and dig into the facts. And to my immense happiness, Danny has recently become a colleague at the New Statesman. Alex is a wry, eloquent and largely unimpressed columnist for The Times and The Sunday Times, as well as my opposite number as Scotland editor of The Spectator. I'm grateful to him for shuttling over from the Death Star for this podcast, and we're keeping an eye on him to ensure he doesn't pocket a New Statesman ashtray or lift a cutlery while he's here. Welcome, Danny and Alex. Thank you very much for having us. Now, Danny, you covered more closely than most the Alex Salmon saga, both the trial and the subsequent inquiries. It hasn't really felt, despite the recency of that episode, that it's played much of a part in this election campaign. Obviously, Salmon has launched the Alba party, but they've been a curiously peripheral presence. Why do you think it hasn't had all that much traction in this election? I think that there was, although journalistically it was compelling and politically important, it, there was never much public appetite for it, especially once it became clear there was no substance to the conspiracy allegations. And then, of course, once James Hamilton had ruled there was no um, that Nicola Sturgeon hadn't breached the ministerial code, I think that there was a lack of place for the opposition to go. And I think there, be there became an awareness that people weren't were more interested, obviously, in the pandemic. That was their priority, and that actually it wouldn't play that well with the electorate to keep going on. Um, on I mean, there were un obviously unanswered questions from the parliamentary inquiry, but there wasn't much to kind of really get on the attack with. And that's and and then obviously. Alba coming into it, produce, uh, coming into the election gave an extra dynamic because if you're playing to that kind of feud narrative, once you put Nicola Sturgeon next to Alex Salmond, she benefits by, by juxtaposition, doesn't she? I think I think that made a difference as well. And Alex, are you at all surprised by Alba's apparent failure to secure a higher profile for itself? I mean, we don't know at this stage whether the party might win some seats, whether Salmond will be elected in North East Scotland or whether they'll be completely vanquished. What's your feel for how things have gone and, and what we might expect from the election result? And, and also perhaps you could 
uh, give us some thoughts on what the consequence would be if Salmond and possibly some allies can get elected, particularly for Nicola Sturgeon. Well, I, I don't know if I'm surprised. I'm, I'm quite amused by Alba's uh, apparent failure. Um, I think that's splendid and richly deserved because it is, after all, a party for the kind of people who think, you know, sleeping in protest tents outside the BBC is a useful uh, way of spending their time. Um, a party for people who think Catalonia is an example to be emulated, not a warning. Um, and so I think their failure would be richly deserved and, as I say, be highly entertaining. However, that said, you know, obviously I think there has to be a, a possibility that Salmond himself wins a seat in the northeast of Scotland. Um, it's very difficult to to say um, with any great certainty exactly how things are going to play out because obviously this has been a socially distanced election uh, and people are actually quite sort of socially distanced from the Holyrood elections in, in normal circumstances anyway. You know, turnout tends to be between 50 and 55% and it may be a little lower this time. Nobody yet knows. You know, one of the striking features, I think, of this election campaign and indeed Scottish politics more generally, and I think this helps emphasise Danny's point about how Alba and Salmond haven't made much of an impact, is, is how stable and settled Scottish politics actually is. There's a lot of froth and excitement um, about a whole load of surface issues such as the referendum question and various other things. But, you know, if you look at it, you know, in the bigger picture, the SNP was always going to win the best part of 50% of the vote uh, a year ago, and that is still the case. Um, and there's been very little movement, really, for any of the parties in, in this campaign, a point here, a point there, and so on. I think it is quite clear, however, that it is very much to unionism's advantage for Alex Salmon to actually do quite well. You know, who is going to cause Nicola Sturgeon more trouble in the next term of the Holyrood Parliament? Is it Alex Salmon and a couple of his cronies, or a couple of bogs? standard replacement level Conservative or Labour MSPs? The answer to that, it seems to me, is self-evident. Well, you point out that there's been a stability to Scottish politics and the parties are kind of locked into the polling numbers with a few points up and down here or there. I suppose one of the unknowns of this election, and I'm sure we all accept the SNP will emerge as the largest party, is who's going to win second place and lead the opposition for the next five years. It's been a straight shootout by two relatively new party leaders, the Conservatives Douglas Ross, Labour's Anna Sarwar. Danny, how would you rank the performance of the two, not just in the televised leaders' debates, but through the campaign in, in general? So before we even get to the voting, has there been a winner and a loser for second place? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of just their their own um, performance, I think Anna Sarwar has been pretty impressive right from right from the off. I think it's been interesting to see how he's matured from the time he was an MP. I think it's been interesting how he's tried to shift the debate from being a purely um, on the NDRF and constitutional debate and tried to carve out his own path with policies um, for a post-pandemic recovery. I think that's quite difficult for him because in terms of actual policies, there's not much distinction between Labour and the SNP, so it's hard to carve out his own path. I think it's also been difficult because in the leaders' debates, he's constantly pulled back to the constitutional question, even as he's trying to move himself away from it. In terms of Douglas Ross, I think he's been unfortunately hectoring and quite aggressive and that hasn't come across very well. I do think, though, it's very hard for him because, you know, he's having to deal with a, a UK leader that's that's mired in sleaze allegations. And every time he's interviewed, he's brought back to that. And why isn't Boris Johnson in Scotland? 
and separating himself from that is quite difficult. And also separating himself from his previous policies and positions and things like prejudice against travellers and position on equal marriage. He's found itself um, very difficult to recover ground from that, I think. Mm, and I think I think maybe Douglas Ross is seen as having had something of a one-note campaign. Everything is dragged back to blocking a referendum. There's no conversation about you know the recovery from pan- exactly, the pandemic, yeah. either in economic or, or in health terms. And um, I mean, we even got to the point where he was effectively calling on the Prime Minister to resign at the weekend. Well, I mean, that's not a bad idea. I mean, that's probably a fairly popular position in Scotland. So, Not you if you're leader of the Scottish Conservatives, I suspect. <laughs> Alex, on this, what have you drawn from this Labour-Tory competition in terms of what it tells us about the unionist side and how it would be represented and the quality of its representation in any forthcoming independence referendum? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it is quite clear that unionism needs both better arguments and better spokesmen, spokeswomen. Um, you know, that that has been evident for for quite some time, and nothing in this election has has changed that. I mean, I've been struck by how woeful and, as you say, one note the Tory campaign has been. Um, you know, everybody knows that the Conservatives are opposed to a second independence referendum. That happens to be a majority view in the country as a whole, particularly if you ask it in terms of the timeline envisaged by. The, the SNP. You know, very few people actually want a referendum by the end of 2023. So that's a popular position. You'd think they should be able to do something with that. You'd think that they should be able to do something as well with, you know, things like the furlough scheme, things like the vaccination procurement scheme. You know, the fact that last year, £40 billion more was spent in Scotland than raised in taxes in Scotland. You know, these are things that the Conservatives and indeed unionism more generally should be able to do something with. But they they haven't. They've sort of forfeited making or you know, decided not to even make these arguments. And so as a result, Anna Sawar has, has had an opportunity, I think. Uh, and there is something you know, refreshing, I suppose, about his suggestion that instead of having these tired old arguments, let's have some boring new arguments. You know, the, the, there is an opportunity for change there. Um, and so, you know, personally, you know, I mean, I, I'm quite happy to, to vote for Labour in this election. You know, that's partly because I live in Edinburgh North and Leith uh, and Labour are the closest challengers to the SNP here. But it's also the case that the Labour Party, having left me after 2015 with uh, Jeremy Corbyn and uh, then Richard Leonard, you know, I feel that the Labour Party has come back to me. So they are now a, a respectable outfit and it's possible to vote for them without sort of sullying your conscience. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Whether there are more people like you who perhaps have been... I, 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 I suspect there are not more people like me, and that may be a very good thing. <laughs> in voting intentions, at least, and that would be quite enough. But uh, yeah, whether whether Labour might expect to scoop up some of the uh, the, the people that had previously deserted them from for the SNP, or indeed for the Tories, uh, if they think that Sarwar is an effective leader and has a message that is, is attractive. That, that, for me, is one of the key results I want to see uh, the weekend when we, we get them. I, I've been intrigued by how Nicola Sturgeon has approached this election, it's felt perhaps for the first time that the SNP has been running as a government rather than as an anti-establishment force. It's had to defend its often patchy record rather than whining about Westminster or boasting about what would be possible in an independent Scotland. Perhaps the party's just been in power for too long to avoid that now. But Sturgeon has almost borrowed Gordon Brown's ill-fated line when he was taking on David Cameron, this is no time for a novice. 
I'd also argue that it's clear the past year of dealing with COVID has changed the First Minister. I've interviewed her for this week's New Statesman and we talked about leading through the pandemic and she told me I'm much less tolerant of some of the traditional nonsense around politics and that cuts both ways. So some of the things I will have engaged in and indulged in in the past as well, I just think I've got less patience for it and hopefully that might lead me to be a better politician as well as a better leader in future. Danny, do you detect a sort of maturing of Sturgeon's leadership? Because even when it comes to a referendum, she told me that while she's aiming for the end of 2023 by the latest, if COVID dictates a further delay, then that's what will happen. She said to her own side that there are no shortcuts or magic wands and she's no time for wildcat referendums or anything else that looks like pro-indie sharp practice. She seems to be speaking more frankly to her own side than we're used to. What, what do you make of the way she's conducted herself during this campaign? One of the things she said to me in the past is that she's learned from the pandemic that support for independence goes up the less you talk about it and the more that you kind of demonstrate devolved government in action and also the limits of devolution while in, in that government. Two of the things she's really good at are reading the room and at tone, and I think that she knows that within the mainstream SNP there is little appetite for it. There's an appetite for a second referendum, but not right now. So she's playing to that, and she also knows that the government's failed in lots of ways on education and drugs deaths, but that there's widespread approval for her handling of the pandemic, so it makes sense for her to kind of emphasise that, her leadership skills, her um, ability on messaging, and, and her general experience, that, that like, like she keeps saying, that she's a serious leader for serious times. But there's also a bit of a problem with that, I suppose, because if you are emphasising those things, then you can't then say, well, the SNP majority, everybody voted for the SNP, therefore we need to have, we have a mandate for that for that second referendum. I think that's potentially problematic. Mm. And, and what have you made of Sturgeon's performance, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this campaign, actually, is how little the pandemic and coronavirus has actually impacted on it. It's almost as though there is a sort of tacit agreement amongst all the parties that this is not something that it is suitable to make political capital out of. And, you know, for all that Nicola Sturgeon has communicated matters very well, there's there's no avoiding the fact that Scotland's performance, even if it is mildly better than the performance of the UK as a whole, has still not been great in handling this, this emergency. And so there's not much advantage to be had from the government there. But equally, I think I detect no enthusiasm from voters for, you know, opposition parties to make political capital out of it. And so there is, as I say, this sort of agreement that there'll be a truce about uh, coronavirus in terms of this election. Uh, and we'll dis- discuss other things. But of course, we don't actually discuss other things because, it, uh, you know, everybody knows the broad outline of the election result. Uh, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, the stability of Scottish politics, actually. And so, you know, this is an interesting example of what happens when you have an election without actually having an election in many ways. Uh, yeah. And Danny, it's fair to say, I think, that you're sympathetic to the independence cause. I'm interested in what you make of the state of the movement at the moment, the various pressures that are pushing in, how, again, Nicola Sturgeon's handling it all. The polls suggested for a long time that the independence was up around 55%, as high as 58%. In one poll, the polls now suggest that's fallen back to to maybe 50-50, perhaps even the union in the lead on occasion. When you're looking at the runes in, in the independence campaign, what are you seeing at the moment? Well, I think that the movement um, as as we touched on earlier, is still very divided, and I th- you know there's been a school of thought that Alp have helped that by kind of self purging all the troublemakers, but those troublemakers are still there; they're just not within the party. We were talking earlier about um, Alba and what impact it's made, and I agree that it hasn't made impa- much impact. But one of the things I think it has done quite effectively is mobilise this disaffection with the GRA. 
and somewhat incredibly really managed to position itself as a champion of the gender critical wing of the movement. And I think that's a problem going forward because that split, that fault line is not going to go away whether or not they get any um, MSPs into Parliament. That fault line is there and um, they seem very able to exploit it. In terms of support for independence generally, I, I think that that probably, um, as we recover from the pandemic and some kind of normality ensues, I think the support will go back up. And Alex, what, what's your reading of the, the reasons behind the, the, if we're not seeing much of a shift in the polls around the election result, we are seeing a bit of a shift around the polls in terms of uh, independence voting. What's your reading of why that's happening? Well, I mean, I, I think Danny made an excellent point earlier when she said that, you know, the way to uh, increase support for independence is to avoid talking about independence. And that's because I think there are a lot of voters who are quite open to the idea of independence in theory, but uh, they shy away from it in practice, uh, that they don't actually want a referendum anytime soon. And if there were a referendum, if you, if they were forced to make a choice, they would be less likely to vote yes than, than they might like, actually. Um, and so quite a lot of support for independence is relatively soft. Um, and so the way to win independence is to avoid talking about it. But at a certain point, you know, we've seen the First Minister get somewhat irritated um, during this campaign when she's been asked about independence. You know, she told Andrew Marr that this election is not about independence. So why are you asking me questions about a border and about currency and so on? And you can see why she doesn't want to be asked those questions, because frankly, she has no answers to them. You know, the SNP hasn't even begun to do the serious thinking that is required in terms of reframing uh, the case for independence after Brexit, after coronavirus. Um, and until such time as it does do some of that thinking, it seems to me that the case for independence not only isn't going to be made, but can't be made. And that's why I think, you know, although it suits all parties in many respects, except for Labour, to pretend that the that a referendum hinges on on the outcome of this election. I, I think much of that is a nonsense and and a, a fraud, if you like, because I see no prospect of a referendum on anything like the timescale envisaged by the nationalists, um, because they simply aren't ready for it. You know, they can't tell you what currency they have. They can't tell you about the border. They can't answer questions about Europe. Um, you know, it remains a nice idea in theory, but as a practical matter, it's a non-runner right now. Well, I've got one last question for you both. Assuming the SNP get their overall majority uh, in this election, or perhaps with along with the Greens, and they will think then they have a mandate for a second referendum. We've got a sort of unstoppable force meets immovable object situation because Boris Johnson has said he simply won't allow a referendum. So relatively quickly from both of you, is there going to be a referendum in the next parliament? Uh, Alex, you go first. No. Um, I mean, and, and the reason for that is not because Boris Johnson will say no. Um, the reason for that is that the conditions which applied in 2011 for the 2014 referendum do not apply right now. So yes, the moral authority of the Scottish Parliament, a pro-independence parliament to press for a referendum is enhanced, but there is still substantial moral authority backing the unionist position that it is only seven years since uh, we had a referendum on this question and it is too soon to open it again. You know, you need the consent of the people to have a referendum. You know, if you had... Um, opinion polls suggesting two-thirds of people wanted a referendum next year, the situation would be very different. But for as long as 50% of the people don't want a referendum, I might think it is very difficult to have one. And Danny, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, disappointingly for you, I completely agree with Alex. I don't think there will be one, and I, and and for and for broadly, <laughs> and for broadly the same reasons. I just think that Brexit has shown us that we need more than a you know fifty fifty split. I think when you were talking earlier about what Nicola Sturgeon's learned, I think that's something else that she has learned is that you know we need the settled will of the people, and we're nowhere near that position. And and as, as Alex said earlier, there's no preparation done either, you know, to, to win over those people who want to know more about the economy and, and, and don't just believe in independence for independence sake. But but the problem's going to be that it's going to dominate the discussions and uh, again of, of the parliament, particularly if Alba gets any seats, because that is going to be their only agenda, isn't it? Yeah, and I wonder what the consequences then would be for the Yes movement over the next five years if they're in power but they can't call a referendum. How secure is Nicola Sturgeon's position? And, you know, how much will she be able to resist the pressure from within her movement to move faster and more aggressively and consider alternative routes to independence, Danny? I think it's already undermined her leadership. I mean, obviously, she's got the, the the approval over the pandemic, but she can't get away from this idea that she's too cautious. And it wouldn't surprise me, unduly, if she didn't last the term. And she also must be absolutely exhausted, um, even though she says she's got the appetite and she has a stamina that's pretty remarkable. It's, it's going to be very tiring um, to be constantly trying to move on your own agenda and have it pulled back to somebody else's. Danny Garavelli and Alex Massey, thanks very much for joining us this week. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. That's it for this episode and for this little pop-up series of Scottish election specials. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as I've enjoyed making them. I'll be back one more time on Monday when I'll join Stephen, Anoush and Alva on the Main News Statesman podcast to discuss the results of the Scottish elections as well as the other elections taking place on the same day. Do join us. Until then... You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Chris Deeran. You can read more of the New Statesman Scottish election coverage at newstatesman.com and follow me on Twitter at at Chris Deeran. This podcast was produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.